Good morning from Washington, D.C. on the morning of one of the announcements of one of the greatest contractions in United States economic history. I'm Paul Kincaid, Director of Congressional Outreach for FMC, the Association of Former Members of Congress. We're glad you could join us here for what we think is a very important virtual roundtable. I know we have a lot of new folks who have not attended our virtual roundtable seriously, pre series previously, and I'd like to welcome all of you. Since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, FMC has moved its traditional in-person programming to the virtual world, beginning with teleconferences and ending up here on everyone's newest favorite site, Zoom. We've had discussions about economics, trade, defense, sports, the election, and everything in between. I'd invite you to visit our archives at www.usafmc.org slash sounds to check out our other programs and to subscribe to Virtual Roundtable as a podcast on either Apple or Spotify. This is an interactive discussion today, so if you have a question at any time, simply click the Q&A button at the bottom of your Zoom screen, fill out your name and question, and if we choose you, our moderator will call on you to ask your question over audio only to our panel. Again, anytime during the call, just click the Q&A button at the bottom of the center of your screen. It's been 67 days since the murder of George Floyd by police officers on a street in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Since that time, demonstrations petitioning the government for a redress of grievances have been observed all over the country with varying results and with varying degree of law enforcement and federal government intervention. While federal officers have allegedly been pulling out of Portland, Oregon, following arrests and assaults, there have been positive signs as well. The city of Asheville, North Carolina, approved reparative assistance to black Americans in that city. Calls for truth and reconciliation initiatives are being heard all over the nation. Statues and other memorabilia of a failed coup by pro-slavery forces against the United States government are being removed from places of honor. And here in Washington, D.C., Black Lives Matter Plaza has become a permanent fixture in our nation's place of leadership, only feet from the White House. It's in that setting that we find our discussion today. Congressman Elijah Cummings was fond of saying that our youth are a message to, we send to a future we'll never see. Today, as they begin exiting that youth and becoming our future, we'll talk to a group of five students who will live with the turmoil of today and use its lessons as the torch is passed again and they become the leaders of the next generation of Americans. Our moderator is a wonderful role model for those future leaders. Congressman Al Wynn represented the 4th Congressional District of Maryland from 1993 to 2008. He served on the Energy and Commerce Committee during his time in Congress and was Senior Democratic Whip for the House Democratic Caucus. He also served as Chairman of the Congressional Black Caucus's political arm. He's now a Senior Director at Greenberg Trowick here in Washington. Congressman Wynn, thanks for joining us this morning. The floor is yours. Well, thank you, Paul, and thank you for that great summation of where we are at this point in time. I think you described it very aptly. And uh, I'm excited about today's discussion because young people are demanding change. They are fueling the change. And they are the answer to the question of where are we going? Because they will be leading us uh, along that road. And I think their role and their voices is very important for what we're trying to accomplish as we look to maybe reset our values or align our values with our actions. And so I think this is gonna be a really good conversation. Uh, what I'd like to do is have each of our panelists uh, introduce themselves, tell you who they are and what they, what they would like you to know. Uh, look at my screen, I'm gonna start with Alexis and uh, ask you to introduce yourself to our audience. Sure, um, thank you Congressman Nguyen, and it's an honor to be part of this conversation. My name is Alexis Terai, and I'm currently a master's student in Asian Studies uh, at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. I was born in the United States, uh, but I spent most of my childhood in Japan. Um, so I learned a little bit about American history, including the history of slavery um, as part of the world history class, but I didn't really um, start thinking about race and I guess the conversation diversity until I moved back to the U.S. Um, for my undergraduate studies at McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota. And after my college, I had the wonderful opportunity to work at FMC for several years. And then I enrolled in Georgetown last year. Um, so I would say compared to the rest of the participants today, I am relatively new to the um, race, uh, the issues of race in America. So I'm really appreciative of the opportunity to really learn from the conversation. So thank you. Well, great, nice to have a fellow Hoya on the panel. Uh, let's go to Tamir. Thank you, Congressman. Um, it is truly a pleasure to join you all 
um, this morning. My name is Tamir Harper. I am from uh, the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection, Philadelphia. Um, and I'm a junior at the American University studying public relations and education with the objective of becoming a disruptor of the K through 12 education system, um, specifically starting here in Philadelphia. Um, as a student, I'm the executive director of a student-run, student-led nonprofit called Herb Ed, which works with students and alumni here in Philadelphia to um, reform and make education more equitable. Um, and most of all, I'm a brother of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated, so it is truly a pleasure to join all of you today. Well, glad to have you with us. I was born in Philly, so I could see you're a kindred spirit. Uh, let's go to Jada. Hi, thank you, Congressman. I'm really happy to be here. My name is Jada Himes. I'm a junior at American University, but I was born and raised in Trenton, New Jersey. And right now I'm studying public relations and marketing at AU. And right now in my free time, what I do is I'm the media intern for a company called Lioness. And a lot of my work revolves around finding untold stories and connecting them with journalists. So I like to find stories about women's rights issues or race relations or workplace discrimination, or even feel good stories. And I connect them with journalists so they can become even bigger stories. Sounds pretty exciting. Uh, Gabriel, you're up. <laughs> Thank you, Congressman. It's good to be here. Um, my name is Gabriel. I'm now a junior at New York University, double majoring in politics and media, culture, and communication. Um, I'm originally from Cerritos, California, which is which is where I'm calling in from right now. And I first started having my my big discussions about race all the way back in middle school. Um, my parents are my, my dad is Mexican and my mom is Guatemalan. I'm Latino, but whenever you like do the standardized testing and you have to choose a race. It, there was never like a Latino race there. And that's when I started learning that race is a lot more complicated. You could be an Afro Latino, you could be a white Latino. And it really just made me realize that there's a lot going on, right? And these discussions need to be had. So that's when I first started getting into it. And honestly, as I've continued through school, as I've continued to meet different people and get exposed to new things, that conversation has progressed. So I'm really excited to be part of this panel today. Well, we're really glad you're here bringing a West Coast perspective. And now we go to Pearl, who I think may be a West Coast perspective as well. Pearl, can you hear me? You're, you're on mute. Unmute Hi, yourself. I can hear you. Great. Oh, okay, you Pearl. Yes, we can hear you. Hi, thank you so much. Um, my name is Pearl. Yes, I um, am also. I am also a West Coast perspective. I'm from Los Angeles, California. And I'm going into my senior year at Amherst College, where I major in law, jurisprudence, and social thought. Um, I also captain the volleyball team at Amherst College. And after I graduate, I'm hoping to start a career that combines law and social justice with my passion for film and media. Well, great. We're delighted to have you with us. And uh, we're going to kick off. But I want to say this. I hope this will be a conversation that folks will feel very comfortable not jumping in, but certainly responding or making additional points or expanding on an idea. So having said that, I want to go to our first question. We're going to ask Alexis uh, to, to lead uh, or kick us off. And that question is, how did the killing of George Floyd impact you, your family, and your friends? Alexis. Yeah, thank you for this question. Um, the killing of George Floyd, I would say, really hit me close to home since the killing took place just a few miles away from um, my undergraduate alma mater, McAllister College um, in Minnesota. So seeing the city that I spent four years in on fire was definitely disturbing and obviously combined with the stress and uncertainty uh, with the coronavirus and the social distancing. Um, at the same time, I think the subsequent Black Lives Matter movement and protests really forced me to um, face the issue of racism and have conversations that I've been um, avoiding, um, especially as someone who didn't grow up in the United States and not having enough knowledge or experience. Um, I was, and I guess to some extent even now, um, I was too afraid to make mistakes or say wrong things or like in intentionally offend someone. But I think the Black Lives Matter um, and the killing of George Floyd in a way lowered the bars um, to talk about racism for people like me um, 
who are not necessarily negatively affected by the systemic racism on a daily basis. Because now, you know, I know I don't know, and I'm lucky to be just surrounded by people who challenge me to have this conversation and who generously share their experience. Um, and through that, I'm also learning um, about my identity as an Asian American and how that may play out um, in relations to others uh, in the American society. Um, so it's obviously a very hard time um, trying to have a, like organic discussions because we all have to social distance, but I'm trying also to take advantage of the time and uh, that I have you know, to read and listen and to reflect. Um, in terms of the impact on my family and especially my relatives and friends in Japan, it's hard to have conversations like this um, with someone who live and, you know, experience the homogenous society like Japan, because I think it's hard to fully understand the complexities of the racism unless you have that personal experience. But I think the, just in my personal opinion, Black Lives Matter stirred the conversation in Japan on what like, diversity means um, to the society that is trying to diversify its workforce and uh, society. And I think seeing what the US is going through right now reminds the rest of the world that changes come uh, with pain and difficulty. It doesn't come very easily, but um, maybe I'm a little optimistic, uh, but I'm hopeful that uh, America can show that it's, it is hard, but it's worth fighting for. Thank you, uh, good perspective. Other comments on that subject? Um, she brought up how she was having to learn and during this time, and it kind of lowered the bar for having these discussions. That's actually been one of the great things that I've realized, especially in the social media age. Um, people have really been using their platforms and they've been letting people know, hey, if this is something that's completely brand new to me or to you, it's not an issue. It just means that now's the time to learn about it, right? And with all these people um, having all this free time on their hands in quarantine, I've really found a lot of people really change their minds about things, right? So a lot of discussions that might have been foreign to some, might have been like a, a no-no zone for others. It's now becoming something that everyone has to acknowledge. And I think a lot of people have learned a lot of great things in this movement. Anyone else want to comment? Care to comment? Yeah, and the killing of George Floyd was especially tragic because it was captured on video. And for a lot of people, we, we always knew that things like this were happening, but because it was on video, it just made the movement all the more powerful. However, it did spark the discussion, at least on my social media, about the desensitivity to black bodies. A lot of people were talking about how it isn't fair for us to see the last few moments of a man's life. And that's all that we kind of know about George Floyd is that really raw, gruesome video. So for me, what I'm trying to focus on is trying to get a story, but without seeing the footage, because sometimes the footage isn't necessary, but the words are. So I'm trying to focus on learning about stories and stuff like that, but not trying to promote the desensitivity to black bodies on social media because personally I saw the video a lot, maybe 20 times without censorship and I didn't think that was okay. Some people have said that, you know, that they couldn't believe that this was happening in, in, in America, but yet it happened more often than people would, would like to believe. But I think your point about the fact that it was on video really captured the imagination because you, each individual, Got, got, got to see it. I want to talk a little bit about the kinds of conversations and, and, and um, Pearl, are you, can you connect with us? Okay, we'll, we'll come back, but I, I want to, because I think, uh, Gabriel, you actually hit upon it, and that is the types of conversations that people are having with fellow students. Uh, and the, one of the questions I have, and I really would like to probe this is, are you finding it easier or more difficult to have these conversations, particularly with people who have a different perspective from you, maybe uh, a more conservative perspective? Because that's one of the key issues we're confronting. 
Uh, Gabriel, what's your thinking on this? Well, that's the thing, right? Like, um, I consider myself privileged to be in, in at a college, right, at a university where this isn't necessarily a brand new conversation. But to those that this is something completely brand new, I've actually found that it has been easier than in the past. And it kind of does have to do with the fact that it was on video. But the fact that everyone knows that um, the officers are completely in the wrong, right? There have been some attempts to paint um, George Floyd as, oh, like he was no angel. I've seen a lot of people say that. But when you really look at it, it's like, it's, it's pretty undeniable. And when people finally confront that, that's when they finally understand that there is an issue, right? When you say, this wouldn't have happened if the person was white, right? When you realize that they were, that he was kneeling on him for eight minutes and 46 seconds, then you really start to question what police practices are really necessary, which ones are actually just. So I would say that it has been easier just because right now we're, we're moving misconceptions that have usually been been used in the past right like people will talk about black on black crime or they'll say oh well there was a reason for this right but right now we're really understanding that we're not at that moment anymore right we're at a crossroads where we can both come to the realization that bad stuff happens when there was no reason for it to occur at all so i think that it has gotten easier just because of the fact that some facts are just undeniable now especially due to the footage that we have I want to expand on that a little bit and ask all, all the panelists on this question about conversations, because I think that's really important. Uh, can you, can, does anyone want to talk about conversations they've had that have been difficult with people who have uh, a strongly held view that's very different from yours or just can't see it? Well, as you, you said, well, maybe George Floyd was just a bad guy or he was no angel. Uh, people who are kind of resisting uh, this moment or resisting uh this view any thoughts on that yeah congressman i think um we as students um are being faced with those conversations very often um i think when we really look into this and we can't just say george floyd brianna taylor even those tough conversations um because she still has not gotten justice for her killer uh her killer has still not been charged yet um i think it is tough and we have to be comfortable having those not light but fire conversations and Matt K talks about that in one of his books um, but I think it's very tough I think it's gotten harder for me because um, I think one people are more comfortable um, asking questions uh, when Google is free I'm a firm believer I should not be your first conversations about racism in America when Google is free and we have an education system that is supposed to teach it and as a black man in America I think we oftentimes people oftentimes come to us first, instead of doing their pre-research or reading Dr. Beverly Tatum's Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together at the Cafeteria Table. Um, so I think it's gotten tougher. And, and I've had many conversations before the murder of George Floyd at American University with folks that had more conservative views of, well, why do we say Black lives matter and not all lives matter? All lives can't matter until Black lives begin mattering into black trans lives matter, into all people actually matter. We cannot preach that all lives matter. So I think conversations have gotten harder. And I think the conversations when I get pushback from folks that say all lives matter or that we can't say black lives matter or people that love to pivot to black on black crime, I think I look at them and say, what has systemic racism taught you? And what systems have you become complicit in when you try to pivot those conversations instead of actually looking at reality of a system that continues to oppress black and brown people. Okay, other perspectives, other views, other difficult conversations? Yeah, I think um, a difficult conversation that probably a bunch of us have come into contact with was also when a lot of protests were happening, a lot of people were focusing more on the looting rather than the messages of the actual protests. And I know that that was a very frustrating conversation that I personally had with my grandparents because they were so focused on, on the crime rather than the actual message of the, of the movement. And I think that was definitely a difficult thing to address because my grandparents are people that, that are definitely liberal, but they have a more conservative kind of older viewpoint towards stuff like that. So I think that was definitely a difficult conversation. And I found that a really helpful way to address it was more to kind of ask questions and help my grandparents kind of come to see 
the the positivity and the progress that was being made through kind of their own lens. Um, and I really am thankful towards actually social media for that because there have been a lot of posts shared about about ways to talk to people and ways to have these conversations and the questions to ask. Um, and I think that was definitely an effective way to talk to them, but it was definitely difficult at the beginning. No, I, I applaud you for finding a, a way to talk because we've got to begin to talk to people who don't agree with us. We a lot of times talk about the echo chamber, which we're all repeating, you know, similar sentiments, but to make this thing work, we're going to have to reach it across uh, lines and, and communicate with other folk. Um, let's move forward on another question about what's happening at an institutional level. And I want to turn to Jada and ask you, what is your university doing to focus on race? Um, I'm smiling just because me and Samir go to the same school and it's sort of well. Oh, this ought to be good. <laughs> and it's sort of well known, at least at AU, that it doesn't seem proactive for what the, the school is doing. I can say wholeheartedly that students run movements and the officials at the school don't. At my school, we have a program or a class mandatory for freshmen called AU Experience. And sort of the main premise for that class is for students to get together and talk about race and consent and things like, things like that essentially. But that's, I can say, that's the only thing that AU does. And the class itself is sort of strange to me because there's a grade attached to the discussion. So there's a lack of genuinity for me. So the discussion doesn't seem as genuine because people kind of have to talk for the A. Other than that, the school, at least for me, doesn't do much. We have a lot of racist incidents occurring at AU pretty often. I remember my sophomore year, a woman got dragged out of her dorm by multiple police officers. And it wasn't the school that took the initiative to say like, oh, this is wrong. It was the students on campus who, you know, did a protest and signed petitions on her behalf. And I feel like a lot of this happens at AU because American University tries to pride itself on having a diverse student body, but the diverse student body really does nothing when, when there's no one advocating on our behalf. There's there's a few black students, there's a, it's not, it's not equal. So the diverse student body means nothing when the faculty isn't diverse or the professors aren't diverse. That's just one part of the, the issue that we're dealing with at AU. And so many of these things happen because they try to focus on having a diverse student body, but everything else doesn't really cater to black or brown students. Tamir, I'm, I'm curious from about another AU perspective. I personally, be, being in the Washington area, have read about some of these horrific incidents involving bananas and, and nooses and African-American student leaders uh, being abused. So I'm curious, what, what's your take on the institutional response uh, at AU? I think, um, one, as an AU student, I feel like we, we experience a racial incident every semester. Um, AU attempts to get this right, um, but it's still not meeting the mark. Um, I don't think we can continue to um, get this wrong at the expense of black and brown students when you continue to market yourself to black and brown students as this diverse institution. Um, I think President Burwell is doing um, the best she can, um, but I think we have to start disrupting the system of higher education. So looking at what tenure look like, um, because a lot of those folks that are the professors that are causing um, the ruckus is folks that you know you can't get rid of because they have tenure. Is looking at what is the admission practices. I'm a Frederick Douglass Distinguished Scholar at American University. It's only five of those a year. How are we expanding that to ensure that more black and brown students are coming? So I think AU has to, one, put more money where their mouth is, but as well as actually implement policies that actually work um, to disrupt the racism at the university. Okay, any other perspectives about institutions? Your well, I'd your like, local yeah, I'd like to just quickly say that um, my university was one of them, but if you're a university that changed your color scheme on your website to just being black for like two weeks, right, had a little statement there, and now it's gone, right? Like it's, 
that shouldn't have been the final point of their activism because that makes it seem as if it was a trend that came and went. You know, it makes it seem like their job was done. I would like that messaging or that sense of urgency to take into the future forever, right? You know, I don't want to see those performative actions. And many institutions are complicit in that as well. I, I know the need to, to, to like, I don't know, step up your PR or to at least acknowledge that they have to do something. That's all great. But I want to see more um, policy than actual changes that actually do occur. So I will say a lot of students at NYU and I'm sure AU, all these other universities are continuing the pressure. And because we can see through that type of stuff. So I would say that is an issue that we need to change as well. Okay. Um, let's move on. Um, Tamir, you back up because you said you wanted to talk about what changes need to be made. And I think that's important because I think a lot of people grasp the problem. It's figuring out how to execute the change that really is the challenge. So Tamir, what are your thoughts on that? So I think when we look at policy across the board, and I'm going to start top up of when we look at what we can do on a federal and state government, it is reinvesting in public education. Um, you can't fix the criminal justice system without fixing education. You can't stop poverty without fixing education. So I think what we oftentimes and uh, we're getting wrong, or at least our policymakers are sometimes getting wrong is we are looking at these as one thing. We aren't trying to fix everything at the same time. We have to actually look at this as a plate of food and we got to eat all of the plate of food at the same time. So you got to eat your carrots and your chicken um, and your, your rice at the same time and figure out how to actually disrupt the system. So when I'm talking about K through 12 education, I'm talking about how are we uh, making incentives for black and brown people to go into the classroom. 2% of the nation's public school teachers are black males. How are we looking at ensuring that there's a fair funding formula? Right here in Pennsylvania, um, we like to say we have a fair funding formula, but when you get into the nitty gritty of the policy, the fair funding formula only works with new revenue. And Pennsylvania hasn't generated new revenue in a month of Sundays. So we need some new revenue so that we can actually have an equitable dispense of funding for K through 12 schools. And then we talk about criminal justice. We need to look at how are we stopping mass incarceration, closing private prisons, retraining police officers so that they're not uh, killing uh, people. We need to have mental health services. One of the biggest things I hope um, the housing department, everyone, the percentage of someone's rent that they get, they put it into an account that grows for that person so that they don't have to depend on public housing for the rest of their life. Actually, we help them buy their first home, first time home buyers program and ensuring that they have social workers with them to guide them through that process. So we need the right policy that actually works and policy that actually supports people long-term. Well, I see you've given us a lot of thought. You may have a career in politics because you, you seem to have some good ideas, but uh, we appreciate your thoughts. I want to get to one last question because then it looks like we've got a lot of audience interest and they want to get in as well. But before we do, I want to go back to Gabriel and ask you a kind of broad question. Do you think your generation is different and how? And when we speak of your generation, I'm not just necessarily speaking of the folks who understand the progressive perspective. There are a lot of folks out there that are on the pushback side of this uh, that maybe don't accept what you folks have been saying about change. So uh, Gabriel, what's your thought? Yeah, it's kind of a mix of everything. You know, they say history repeats itself. Um, we're a very polarized nation right now, but it hasn't, this isn't the first time it's happened, right? So you can kind of see this has happened in the past, learn from it. I would say that I kind of touched on it before, the whole social media aspect has brought everyone to the table, right? It's, it's pretty difficult to sit this one out. Um, it's, it's kind of hard to not know anything about what's going on. So I would say that's a little bit different because of the fact that everyone's gonna have an opinion, right? Um, if you're on one side or the other, people are, people are gonna have a side, right? Um, but I would say one thing that I've, for better or for worse, actually, has been um, the phrase defund the police has been closely associated with this Black Lives Matter movement. And I say for worse, because as you've seen, it has led to difficult conversations, right? It has led to people saying, oh, well, you want to abolish the police? We can't do that. But I also say for better, because I really do like the, the sense of urgency with the messaging. And I say that because defund the police when you associate it, it, it's already giving you a policy right then and there, right? It's a demand, it has a policy, and depending on who you ask, they're gonna have a little bit different response, but the truth is that we want to reallocate our resources and our funding into other worthwhile measures as well. 
So I would say that our generation right now, we're not just saying that Black Lives Matter, we're saying that Black Lives Matter and let's do something about it, right? We have a policy for it. And this isn't something new, right? In the 60s, we had the, the Civil Rights Movement and it also had a policy initiative as well, right? And it led to the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. So I think that yes, we're different right now in our messaging, but we're also the same because we also have a goal in sight. And our polarized nation is always gonna be um, a feature of these conversations. But the truth is that right now you can't sit this one out. And I think everyone has a sense of urgency and initiative right now. Anyone else wanna chime in on that question about is your generation different? Are you gonna yeah, be different? I, I really agree with you, um, Gabriel, when you talk about um, the important role that social media plays, um, especially with our generation, because you're right, like you really can't avoid confronting these issues and having these conversations. And even if the people necessarily and values and viewpoints aren't drastically different in our generation, our ability to communicate and raise awareness and enact change definitely, definitely is. Okay, all right. Paul, it looks like we've got some questions. Do you wanna uh, open it up and let, uh, let's hear from some of our audience members? Yes, sir. Camilla Green from our audience has a question about systemic racism. Camilla, you can go ahead and unmute your microphone and ask your question. So how has systemic racism impacted each of you in the skin that you live in? Interesting. Okay, folks, unmute and have at it. I can go first. Um, so I think as an Asian American, which can be considered as kind of a model minority among the colored minorities, I think I benefit in some sense. Um, and, but at the same time, there has been a, a racism towards the Asians uh, after the COVID-19. Um, at the same time, I do think, like I, I also wondered how, because I don't have to worry when I'm running outside to get shot, then that's a privilege that I have as, as an Asian. So I'm, I think as an Asian personally, I think I'm in that middle of, yes, I'm part of the colored minority that sometimes experience racism, but also I'm privileged enough to um, speak up and have conversation and challenge uh, friends. So I'm still trying to figure out how to balance and what are the kind of specific things that I can do, but that's just my experience as an Asian. Okay, other experiences. Thank you, one, thank you for that question. I think um, it, it's two approaches. And I think one of the, the simple ones is, my name is Tamir Harper. Um, and very often when I'm in conversations or introduced, they call me Tamir Rice. So that, that's a simple way that systemic racism and oppression peeks through people's, um, but as well as, um, I was a K through 12 education student. I went to public schools all my life. Um, and I went to the good, bad and ugly of the school district of Philadelphia. Um, my sixth grade year, I went to one of the most underfunded, under-resourced schools in the city. Um, and walk through metal detectors every day. Um, did not have enough teachers, dark buildings and everything. But I transferred to a school 20 minutes away in the same school district, but a different zip code that didn't have metal detectors, that didn't have school police officers, that had air conditioning, that had all the books we needed to learn, had own, their own science teacher. That's systemic racism. When it's built into the zip code that you live in, when the housing market determines the quality of education that you get, so systemic racism was very loud and it's still very loud in the one nine one four two zip code of Philadelphia. Yeah, Any I other thoughts? Yeah, Jada. What Tamir just said, I went to a very underfunded school in Trenton, New Jersey for elementary, middle, and high school. And literally a mile away, my mom called to see if I can attend a school in another district, but just a mile away. And they said that they didn't take students from Trenton. And I tried to go to libraries, I remember, when I was a younger kid and they didn't allow students from Trenton at my county library. And the other libraries in my city shut down completely. 
And I was confused as a, a young child. I was like seven or eight. And I was wondering, like, how can I learn if the li- I don't even have libraries in my town. They shut down because they were underfunded. And that's systemic racism, just education. And going to AU, it was interesting as well because I was in a program called Community-Based Research Scholars. And essentially what this program is, it's a it's just a diverse group of people joining together to do quantitative and qualitative research to help better communities in DC. And I remember people talking down on public schools. I remember one girl specifically saying, public schools are dirty and the ceilings and the chairs and the textbooks are falling apart. And I was completely offended because things like that, it's, it's a system, it's out of my control. I couldn't help the school that I went to. I tried and it was very frustrating for people to not acknowledge that system that very well affected me growing up. Um, I guess I could also share something that I experienced, especially within education as well. Um, my high school was kind of unique. It was a public school. However, um, you had to like test to get into it. So you had to have, um, it was like a certain portion of every middle school and, and elementary. It was, it was seven through 12. And they would get like the highest performing students to go to that high school, even though it was public. But while at that institution, I never found any resources that actually helped a lot of our minority students. Um, for example, like I was one of the only like five Latinos in my grade and, 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 that, and that felt pretty horrible, right? And we had cultural groups for all these different groups, but there wasn't one for Latino students. There wasn't one for black students. It just felt that, okay, if you happen to make it to the school, you're on your own, right? Where other groups had their own resources. So um, I got together with a group of students. We made the association of Latin American students. And it's actually found that the, that the few Latino students that would usually come to the school, they would usually drop out or lead to different schools. However, after those resources were put there, after a club, a, um, a, a, a network for them was put in place, we found that the dropout, the, the transfer rate has actually gone down. So students are finding themselves more welcome at the institution. And I've graduated, I'm, I'm, I'm multiple years out of I'm that high school now, but looking back, they now have robust a, um, a black student union on campus. And now those students are being more accepted that are there. And it's not a complete solution, right? We need more than that. But I will say that that's how I've experienced it, right? You'll, you'll be a minority, you'll get to a certain place, and then that's it, right? You're on your own. So I think that we need to empower students wherever we put them and to make sure they can thrive, right? Because not everyone has the same resources available to them. All right. Very, very good. Very interesting. Paul, what's up next? Colleen Watson has a question. Colleen, go ahead and unmute your microphone and you can ask your question to our panel. Colleen, you'll need to unmute your microphone. Okay, let's, uh, let's go to, to Dave Rabinowitz from our audience who has a question. Dave has a question about justice and you can go ahead and un- un- unmute your microphone and ask your question. Okay, can you hear me? Uh, this question, uh, I asked this question a long time ago towards the beginning when you were talking about justice for George Floyd. And I'm wondering what is justice? Does justice require vengeance? Is justice even compatible with vengeance? Should we be concentrating on punishing police for past actions or rather on preventing future bad actions? Who wants to lead on that one? That's a very good question. I was in a conversation yesterday and we were talking about maybe if we start tying behavior to pensions, uh, that could improve police behavior. Uh, that's kind of my, my thought, but. Uh, this is about what you folks think. So, uh, uh, Tamir, you want to lead on that one? Uh, one, I like your idea of uh, connecting it to the pensions because pensions hit home um, if you do the wrong thing. Um, I think you have to do both. I think you can punish officers for past behavior as well as start doing proactive measures and changing the system. So I think you should still be working to arrest the killers of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and so many others, as well as working to change the system of not having police officers respond to mental health cases with a firearm. I think you can also start looking at 
what is what is the complaint system? Philadelphia, we just uh, a news article just came out about how one officer uh, has shot three people um, in his time on the force when other officers have never even pulled their weapon or discharged their weapon. Um, so we need to start looking into that data and start using it to change the system. So you got to do a little bit of both. You got to punish, um, to as my mom used to say, you got to make an example out of somebody. So you need to make an example out of them, but as well as start making policies and changing. Uh, Gabriel, do you have a thought on that? Um, I'm glad he brought up the fact that justice hasn't been served for Breonna Taylor because it gets to the root of the problem. Like the very first thing we have to do is arrest the killers, correct? So like that, that's the bare minimum. And then after that, what are we going to do to prevent this in the future, right? He talked yeah, about okay. punishments for past actions, but we have to be preventative as well. And I think that goes back to the whole defund the police movement. We're talking about, like, I think there was a study that just came out. Um, it was a small town in Kentucky. Instead of hiring two more police officers, they hired two more social workers. And they found that repeat 911 calls lowered, right? The community was just doing better off, right? And I think when we look at those case studies, that proves uh, what do we do next? You know, it, it, it gives us an idea of what we can do to prevent it, you know, because like there always are going to be these issues, correct? But we have to find a way to do better and learn from them. So the first step is to make sure justice is served in getting the killers and holding them accountable. And then after that, what are we going to do to prevent this? And I think that really is one way to do it that I find is effective. Pearl, are you, are you on with us now? And I just wanted to kind of second what Gabriel was saying that the kind of like preventative and the comp the confidence that things like this won't happen again, I think is a really, really important aspect of justice. And also, again, kind of what we were talking about with like what our universities are doing to focus on race, moving past just the promise of change and actually enacting it, actually laying down the roots. And then you can have that confidence that issues and incidents like this won't happen again. Anyone else want to comment before we go to the next question? I also want to second on Gabriel. He mentioned that one of the very first things we have to do is arrest the killers of Breonna Taylor. However, I'm noticing that's not what people are doing. I, I see plazas being painted and just weird performative actions and the very minimal, the main thing, the first thing that we should do, as Gabriel said, is to arrest the killers. And I'm just noticing a trend of a lot of people, companies, institutions in general, sort of doing what I would like to call performative justice. It's not really what we need. It's just something to quiet us up and make us feel like we're moving somewhere. Interesting you say that I drove past a private school, an elite private school in Washington, D.C., and right out front they had the sign, Black Lives Matter. I said, okay, I think your intentions are good, but I'm curious about the, the actual actions that, that, that go along with it. Uh, if I can. Alexis, if, yes. Yeah, um, I, I think we're in kind of the momentum to make changes. Um, and I think the justice, obviously there are specific actions uh, that turned into a specific, you know, policies, but at the same time, this justice, I think we should consider it in a long term um, and like long term impact. So mm -hmm. obviously, there's been a policy change on state and um, the federal level, but I think companies um, are trying to make some institutional changes um, in addition to academics. And I think these companies need to take advantage of the momentum that we're in because I think it's easy you know we're right now all staying at home and I think we have that energy going on but then after coronavirus can calm down and things get back to quote-unquote normal I think it's hard to um, re-energize this um, energy that we have so I think how to make this conversation justice more of a long-term thing is something to keep in mind. I, I think that's an absolutely essential point because there shouldn't be, as Jada said, a performative exercise and then nothing follows up. Uh, so I'm looking forward to seeing what happens going forward on a more permanent basis. Uh, we've got other questions, so uh, let's, let's hear more from our audience. Congressman Randall James has a question about Black Lives Matter. Randall, if you can go ahead and unmute your microphone and ask your question. 
Yeah, hi guys. Um, I um, can you hear me? Yeah, okay, cool. we, we can hear um, you. Cool. Um, yeah, I'm fully supportive of Black Lives Matters, and I have no problem using that terminology. But I do have friends that are more comfortable using All Lives Matter, but they support fully the Black Lives Matters movement. Their heart is totally in the right place. And I'm just afraid if we call these people out or condemn them, we could risk losing allies. So I just want to get your input to why that's a problem if some people are more comfortable when they really are allies to the movement. Very, very provocative, thought-provoking question. I'm curious, I'd like to hear from our, our panelist. Pearl? Girl. There okay. was this. There was this post that I saw the other day that read, um, "The reason why all lives matter is problematic is because when in the Constitution, all men were when they wrote all men were created equal, that didn't include black individuals. So I think that kind of gets down to the root of the problem of all lives matter. I think. I think that. It is very thought provoking to think about how you could risk losing someone that you do believe is an ally because of the terminology that they use. However, I, I think that it does the entire Black Lives Matter and the entire movement an injustice not to call out or challenge people that use All Lives Matter and to really make them think about why they use that statement and really push them to kind of explain, explain, just explain why. I think that that's when people really come to realize the, the problem, problematic thinking that they have and that's been like ingrained in them is when you kind of push them to really look, look inside themselves and kind of come to realize that those, those words are not, are hurtful. I have something to add to the discussion. It's interesting how the words are so heavy nowadays. So saying all lives matter, it, it automatically sort of, at least when I hear it, I, I picture a certain group in my head and for the friend to use the words all lives matter, but be behind the movement of Black Lives Matter is extremely contradictory in my opinion. And if you wanna be for Black Lives Matter, you should be using those words. And it sounds to me that maybe your friend is afraid to upset a few people and that's okay. If you do upset a few people during this, like we're moving towards a time when we have to have discussions and we shouldn't be afraid. If you do argue with a few friends or family members, that's fine. I don't think that, you know, if the conversation is correct and insightful and informative, informative you won't lose an ally, you'll make a better ally. I think it's, that's an important point that we have to have difficult discussions with people that we disagree with. But I think the key is, remaining respectful and understanding it's a conversation. It's not, you know, a declaration of war. Tamir, I, I, I saw you kind of kind of juiced over that question. I'd like to hear your thoughts. No, it, it, Congressman, I think it's two parts to my answer is one, um, I don't need allies, I need co-conspirators. And I think that's a, a big difference in when we start talking about these things. So. One, I hope you and your friend will be co-conspirators in co-conspirators in this movement. And I think the second part is, um, you 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 literally cannot say all lives matter when my life still doesn't matter to this system of oppression. When I have to drive with my license on the dashboard because I am scared to get pulled over by the police and have to reach, you can't say all lives matter. Like it, it is. Your friend has to, if they are a true ally, allyship first starts with respecting the decisions and the verbiage of the people that are being oppressed. And Black people have decided to say Black lives matter. So if you want to be an ally or a co-conspirator, and I hope you want to be a co-conspirator, you have to respect the words all lives, uh, you have to respect that we say Black lives matter. And if that's uncomfortable for you, you're not a co-conspirator or ally, and that's okay. The work will still get done. But you just have to want to know what side of history you want to be on. And Congressman John Lewis said, do you want to get in good trouble with us? And you have to decide what trouble you want to get in. I, I smile to me because I carry my, my registration in a clear plastic bag for that same reason. 
Alexis, did you want to comment? Yeah, um, I agree with what everyone said. I do think um, that, it, it, I think there's the first step of the recognition that the current system that we live in treat people differently um, based on your skin color. And I think once you have that recognition, um, in my opinion, it shouldn't be too difficult to embrace that Blacks, Black Lives Matter is the more appropriate and necessary slogan um, because I think all, life ma all lives matter just water down what this you know movement is actually trying to do. Thank you. Uh, Paul, what's up next? Congressman David Moore actually has a question in a similar vein about conversations and how to have them with people who don't necessarily agree with you. David, go ahead and unmute your phone or your microphone and ask your question. Thank you. Um, Alexa said early on that she often felt afraid of, quote, saying the wrong thing, unquote, in discussions about race. Lots of conservatives echo that feeling in accusing American universities of political correctness, which they consider to be an accusation of enforcing a monolithic politics that they claim suppresses expression by conservative students and faculty. So my question is, on your campuses at least, which you know firsthand, is that accusation accurate? How, how wide a range of opinions and analysis is entertained in serious conversations about race and how broad a range should be? Okay, who wants to lead off on that one? That's a good question. Gabriel? Yeah, I'll bring an example from my campus. Um, my freshman year at NYU, um, um, a well-known conservative professor invited a also very well-known conservative um, media personality, like a YouTuber, to basically talk about like, like their opinions, right? And um, it wasn't the, the faculty or the administration that called for this event to be canceled or, or like, like raised an issue with it. It was students. So um, a lot of people, like, they think that the institutions themselves are the ones that are like um, stopping this freedom of thought. But at the end of the day, I think that it's more student led, but it's not stopping like the freedom of thought. I will say that a lot of times when we talk about like freedom of speech, like there's a certain point where you're actually infringing on other people's rights or other people's, um, I guess, like safety, you know, because this speaker is, was, was very well known for their inflammatory remarks that were, were built on hate, right? I've never seen an, an incident where a conservative was, was shunned just for having, I don't know, just like a difference of opinion. It was always for having something that was built on the premise of hate. So I would say the, the two parts of the answer are just the fact that I would say it's more student-led than institution-led. I think if you hear about those incidents, it's usually students raising it, and it usually is for good reason. So I would say there's a fine line, but I will say it's a little bit more nuanced than people make it out to be. Oh, you want to jump in on this? Pearl? Yeah, I agree that um, I think these conversations are definitely more student-led, and I think that oftentimes colleges and universities will get accused of being political, of this political correctness. However, I think that that political correctness is kind of just a name for having kind of a safe space on campus, and anything that jeopardizes having a safe space or makes students not feel as though they are welcome, as though they can speak up, as though any any of those things um i think that's really harmful and um i don't think that's necessarily being unaccepted not accepting that type of speech is necessary political correctness i think that's just creating a safe space on college campuses anyone else want to jump in before we go to the next question okay well if not paul let's try to get in a few more before we have to wrap up Yes, sir. Susan Lippman wants to talk about the, uh, the students and how they avoid letting discouragement hurt them on campus. Susan, if you can go ahead and unmute your microphone and ask your question. Go ahead, um, Susan. I need to bring my question back. My question is, 
how do you protect yourselves, you, you students? What measures have you put in place so that you do not allow yourselves to become discouraged when you are constantly greeted by those who don't want or don't believe in change? Okay, who wants to start us on that one? Jada? Yeah, um, thank you for the question. I personally, what I do is I just like to surround myself with forward positive thinkers, change makers, essentially. I would love to say that, you know, I can say confidently that all of my friends, they fight for what's right and they fight for what's good. Um, and that for me makes me happy and it, it keeps me positive and it protects my energy. Anyone else want to chime in on that one? Okay. Um, or yeah, yeah. Or I, I mentioned that history repeats itself. So I would say besides that, I also have some mentors as well, right? People that have lived through your shoes. So that's a good resource to have as well. And just knowing how to navigate these, these difficult circles. Okay, okay. Um, let's see, can we squeeze in one more, Paul? Yes, sir. Janice Koch has a question about white privilege. Janice, go ahead and unmute your phone and you can ask your question. Yes, thank you. First of all, thank you all for being here and listening to your perspectives is so terribly important. So um, white privilege, of course, as Peggy McIntosh from the Wellesley Centers for Research on Women talks about, um, as well as, of course, um, Robin D'Angelo, is that sort of unearned privilege you have where you can in fact drive your car with your registration and your driver's license in your, in your glove compartment and not think about it for a moment. Just one of many, many, many opportunities white people such as myself have taken for granted their entire lives. In reading the work on white privilege, I wonder if you have discussions about this with friends and allies of yours who are white. Hmm. Excellent question. Folks, don't be shy. Tamir. Yeah, I, I think I personally do have conversations. I have white friends and I, I, I call them modern era white privilege and I have those conversations about white privilege. Um, I think anyone that knows me specifically my white friends knows that i will call them out and make them unpack the privilege of what they do sometimes um but i think even more so and um, i referenced this earlier someone asked who dr beverly tatum was um, why are all the black kids sitting together at the cafeteria table with one of her books she was the previous spellman um president spellman college president and she talked some she said something on the lines that white people have to convene themselves and talk about white privilege and what it means to be white in systems before they start talking or asking other people to have that conversation. So I really emphasize and hope that we continue to make sure that white people can really talk about systems of oppression and white privilege, how to be allies uh, and co-conspirators. Okay, we are getting toward the end. Anyone else want to comment on that before we wrap up? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I obviously I'm not white, but I think as an Asian, I have some sort of privileges. But then I didn't realize it until my friend like, told me about it and like, challenged me to face the privileges that I have. And I'm very lucky that I had those friends, but I know that's not the... Um, that's not the case for everyone. So I hope there's some sort of intentional space where people don't judge, you know, each other based on what they say or, you know, but a kind of session to respectfully talk to each other um, as an outsider, what kind of privileges that, you know, each race may have to kind of inter have that interactive conversation is something that I would, um, as some as someone with privileges, I think um, I would really appreciate. Well, thank you. And we've kind of drawn to the end of the hour, but I want to say on behalf of the former members of Congress, first, thanks to our audience. We've had great participation, great questions, and we certainly apologize to those who were not able to get their questions in. Also want to really thank Alexis and Tamir, Gabriel, Jada, and Pearl for their participation because you provide us with some tremendous insights and 
personally, and I think I can say this for the audience, you've inspired us and given us a sense of hope that we're going down the road in the right direction. So thank you for participation. Thank you all for joining us, and we look forward to further conversations. Thank you very much, and have a great afternoon. Thank you. Thank you, Congressman. Have a good one. Yeah.